Spirit Catholic Radio, KVSS. We are Catholic Radio for the Christian community. Good morning. Welcome to Spirit Mornings. I'm Bruce McGregor with... Chris McGregor. And today, Chris, we're joined by Vinnie Flynn. Vinnie is the Executive Director of Mercy Song Ministries of Healing, also a gifted musician, speaker, and writer, and his powerful teachings on the Divine Mercy, the Sacraments, and the Father's Love made him quite a popular speaker at parish missions, conferences, and retreats. And, of course, we're going to put him in the radio spotlight today, talk about his book, Seven Secrets of the Eucharist. Vinnie, good morning, and welcome to the program. Good morning, Bruce. Thank you so much for joining us, Vinnie. I... I just, I just think this is quite the, the gem of a book, The Seven Secrets of the Eucharist. I have to ask you first, though, why seven? <laughs> um, it seemed like a good number. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I like it. Actually, at, um, at uh, retreats and talks that I give, um, I mention a lot more of them. Uh, and it was just, I was advised not to try to write a big, huge book with everything in it, but to just, you know, pick a nice number and just give... Um, the basic stuff initially. So, mm-hmm. I mean, there may be a second volume in the works, I don't know, but um, there certainly is no reason why there has to be seven, and, and they're not really secrets. Uh, that's true. What led you to write this book? Well, as I was going around giving talks and retreats and different conferences, I kept it kept being very, very clear to me that most people don't know what the Church teaches about the Eucharist. I mean, even, even daily communicants and people devoted to Eucharistic adoration weren't really aware of a lot of what the, teach, the Church teaches about the Eucharist. And as I looked around, I found that there were basically two types of books. There's the super-academic book mm-hmm. that's written by a theologian for theologians, and then there's some very nice, pious books to inspire about the Eucharist, but some of the theology gets watered down in, in keeping it simple. So what it seemed to me is that there's, there was a need for a book that, that has all the deep theology, but it's expressed simply and related to daily life of the average person. Yeah. Oh, I think you've accomplished that very well. And in its message, it, it strikes me that you would use the divine mercy and many of the revelations of St. Faustina to be able to uh, communicate these deeper truths. Yeah, I was very, uh, I was very involved in my work in, in Divine Mercy, and the more I read the Diary of Saint Faustina, I mean, she, she took the the formal name, the religious name Faustina, of the Most Blessed Sacrament, and um, she speaks of the Eucharist as the secret of her sanctity. Mm. Almost every page of the diary, there's some reference to the Eucharist, and what I was finding at the same time I was reading Pope John Paul II, and and I was finding that. She was emphasizing the same kinds of things in the diary that he was emphasizing in his teachings, especially the need for a personal relationship with Christ in the Eucharist. And and everything I was finding in the diary, I would then find echoed in the Catechism of the Catholic Church and in Scripture. I think you really grab us with that very first secret that you have there, secret number one, that, that the Eucharist is alive. Yeah, that's... Um, it, it was, it, a lot of it came from my own awareness, is that, you know... I always thought I was a good Catholic, and, and the, the Church was, was important to me, and the Eucharist was important to me, but I never thought through clearly, and a lot of the times uh, I would think, you know, the body of Christ, and you think about the, the dead body of Christ on the cross, mm-hmm. and, and it wasn't clear enough to me, I never put the pieces together that, you know, we're, we're taking in a living being here, and, and this being is, is fully man and fully God. And we're actually taking his life into us. So it's, a, it's very much a living sacrament in a way that I had never kind of, I kind of knew it, but it never really clicked. Mm-hmm. When you understand that, 
you really are called to reverence, I mean, even as you're going up into the communion line. And I thought that image that you had of the angel at Fatima, which who prostrated itself to the Eucharist, to show us just how intensely the reverence which is due. Yeah, that, that, that passage struck me. I remember the first time I read that passage from the angel's appearance to the children at Fatima, um, just that an angel who's constantly in the glory of God, constantly in adoration, would would throw himself flat on his face to to adore Christ in the Eucharist. That's just a, a very powerful thing for me. And, and so that's something that I realized, you know, nobody ever really made that clear enough to me that whatever my... my um, actual posture, whether I'm kneeling or standing, it, it's, I need to be inside throwing myself prostrate in adoration because this is the person of God there for me. I think that challenges us all because a lot of times we, as we go into the communion line, I mean, we are uniting with the Church in this wonderful gift of the Eucharist, but so often our thoughts are distracted by somebody in front of us or, heaven forbid, somebody's chewing gum or doing something like that. Yeah. You almost have to say, Father, forgive us. We just don't appreciate this. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, that's one thing I think I've, since I started <clears throat> kind of putting the talks together in the book, it's like I'm repenting all the time now because, you know, even the stuff I'm preaching in the book, I mean, I, I, I go against it every day, where, as you say, you're going to receive communion and your mind goes somewhere else. And then, I mean, sometimes I get back and I realize, wait a minute, I just want to receive communion, but I, I don't remember any of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My mind was just somewhere else. God, mm-hmm. forgive me for the times I've treated you like a dead object, mm-hmm. in, instead of realizing that this is a living person who's willing to come into my life so that, so that my life will be changed, so my life will be different. Yeah. And Vinny, with the second secret that Christ is not alone, um, I think you and I are probably peers. You point out that uh, uh, when he becomes present for us in the Eucharist, Christ is, Christ is not alone. And how a lot of us never really learned this. And, and I know that I went through uh, Catholic grade school, Catholic high school, uh, all kinds of catechesis and everything, but no one, as they said to you, ever suggested to me that Christ does not become present alone. Exactly. And I, that was, that's exactly what I talk about in the book, that that was my whole experience. I, by the time I was a sophomore in college, I thought I had all the answers I could get, you know, mm-hmm. gone through you know, four years of Jesuit theology, I thought I was really... It never occurred to me to think deeper. I was just focused on Jesus, which is great to focus on Jesus, but it has to be the full Jesus, and Jesus is united with the Father and the Holy Spirit, always. Mm -hmm. And that's what is one of the pieces that we need to put together and and realize that when when Christ comes to us, all of heaven comes to us. That's very profound, yeah. to think that all of heaven is present with him at, at, at that experience. Yeah, and the, one, the thing that was strongest for me, is uh, I think I end that chapter with it, was, is the example of St. Therese, who even as a child, I mean, when she received her first communion, she knew this, and she knew that when, when she was receiving Christ, her mother, who had died, was coming to her, too. Wow. Mm-hmm. And that she even knew it. And that's kind of what I'm, I'm, I meant when I talked about the fact that these are not really secrets. I mean, the saints and mystics have always known it, and the Church has always taught this stuff, but we somehow never got the big picture mm-hmm. of, of what actually is happening when we receive. Or somehow the mystery has been uh, taken away from us, either by our own inattentiveness or just by a lack of uh, focus. Yes. 
I I love secret number three. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's the liturgist in me or whatever, but <laughs> that there is only one mass. I mean, it's like if I could get that into a lot of people's heads, that it's not all these one over here and one over there, my experience over here. But do you realize this is there is only one mass? Right, right. It's so you know, and uh, it, so many times we all can take ownership of uh, you know our own little private mass and the mass that we like best and the, the the particular priest that we like to say the mass and and we forget that the mass is beyond all of that mm-hmm. and that we're being allowed. It's like this curtain is lifting, and we're being allowed to get out of time and into eternity. Uh, it's really heaven on earth. Every Mass is heaven on earth. And we're being allowed to really taste heaven. And that's why it's really important not to mess with it. I mean, I'm just, yeah. I don't mean to be so crass, exactly. but it's just, you can't, you know, you, you can't change the words or the formulas or do all kinds of different things because there's a reason. And we've, we're given plenty of options. Within, right. within that Mass, but the Church has, uh, in its essence, it's one Mass being offered in this heavenly liturgy. It's connecting outside of time, as you so beautifully put it. Yeah, that's, and, and see, Pope John Paul was so, so clear on that, that, that no one has the right to take ownership of the liturgy. I mean, it's the eternal liturgy. There's the, the only Mass is the Mass going on all the time in heaven. That's the eternal liturgy where Jesus is forever offering himself to the Father for us. And every form of priesthood, the ordained priesthood, the priesthood of the laity, that every form of the priesthood is actually a sharing in one way or another with the one priesthood of Christ. He's the only full, true priest, the great high priest. And so we're being allowed to share that with him, and especially the priest. There's this sacramental identification where the priest is still a human person, an individual human person, but is so identified with Christ that he acts in the person of Christ. He's not just saying the words. He, it is Christ in him saying the words. So he's, he's being able to step right into the priesthood of Christ and, and act in the person of Christ for us. It's a wonderful thing. But for a priest to miss that and to start taking ownership and changing things on his own as if it's his own ritual, that, that just doesn't work. Well, there's a real danger in that. I, I, I think what has to happen for, for people, too, as we go to a celebration of the Mass, is that when that's why it's everyone, it's so important to get prayerful and deep because you really are trying to transcend this this chronos, this this timeline that we have when we look at our watch and say, uh-huh. here I am right now, as opposed to that kiros, that outside of time. I mean, you're trying to enter spiritually into an experience that's outside of time. Exactly. And you can't do that when you're gabbing with a person next to you, or if you're sitting there saying, well, the music's bad, or this preacher isn't preaching right, or this right. is, you know, you can also mess up your own participation, too. That's right. And it is hard. I mean, it's hard not to, as you say, to be distracted by those things. It's hard not to get judgmental sometimes. But the more we can realize that whatever the trappings of this particular um, ritual at a particular time and place, as you say, with transcended time, God lives in the eternal now. God isn't subject to time. And, and so we've entered the eternity of God himself, and he wants to give us his whole way of life. One of the things that I love is in, in Pope John Paul's um, uh, apostolic letter, Stay With Us, Lord, uh, which he, uh, was virtually the last 
formal document that he wrote, mm-hmm. um, he talks about the Eucharist as a mode of being. Mm-hmm. It's a way of living that passes from Jesus into each of us. And he, he talks about how we have to assimilate, we have to take in the values of the Eucharist, the attitudes, the resolutions of Christ himself. It's almost supposed to be like, as, as we're receiving the Eucharist, or as we're adoring Christ in the Eucharist, in, in Eucharistic adoration, something passes from his life into us, so that he passes his whole way of being mm-hmm. human and divine, so that we take that on, we become other Christs. Mm-hmm. That's the whole purpose of the Eucharist. Secret number four, the Eucharist is not just one miracle. And, uh, you know, in this you cite uh, the teaching of Pope Leo VIII in an encyclical letter on the Eucharist. Talked about uh, the, the Eucharist obtaining and, and really containing all supernatural realities. And, and it really isn't one miracle, though, but it, it, it's a variety of miracles. And, and I don't know that we'll ever really be able to completely understand. I'm sure we will. You know, well, that's why it's a mystery. Absolutely. Right. I mean, h- how can we possibly comprehend this? Yeah, and even I almost even didn't even write about that because I can't comprehend it. Yeah. it but it blows my mind. When I think about it, I think, wow. You know, I always thought about this as, wow, what a huge miracle. And now I realize it's a whole succession of huge miracles, one after the other, but, but somehow simultaneous, that, that all the things that are being given to us through the Eucharist, it, it, any one of them is a miracle. Mm-hmm. And so we realize how much God has done. He's surpassed all his other miracles and put them all together in the Eucharist mm-hmm. to, in order to give us his own way of living so that we can become like him, which goes right back to Genesis, that we're created in his image and likeness. Mm-hmm. And as the Catechism of the Catholic Church says, we always have, are in his image, but our, the likeness to him has been disfigured by sin. We just don't look like God anymore. We don't act like God. The Eucharist is supposed to restore us in his image. That's what the Pope's talking about when he says it's a mode of being that has to pass into us and through us to other people. That's where we, we again, become like God. Mm. And there are so many people that will hear this teaching and not understand and say, oh, this is just so out there. But that's not unlike the experience of those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, because they heard and heard and heard, but wasn't until the breaking of the bread right. and their reception and sharing that with Christ, did they even, it was so phenomenal for them that they came, came running back. And I think that's for us, too. There are so many of us who are not able to articulate exactly what happens. But like that Emmaus experience, you, you just know that it did. Yeah. There have even been, I, I, I've talked with so many people, and I've even read some things that some people have written that, about how that even before they had a real understanding of the Eucharist, they were drawn, they had a hunger for that bread. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes just, just adoration, I explain this especially true of Eucharistic adoration, even if I don't fully understand and, but I, I commit myself to being in front of the Eucharist, adoring Christ in the Eucharist, by some kind of osmosis. My, my spiritual director, Father George Kosicki, calls it radiation therapy. Mm. That, that Jesus just radiates his own thoughts, his own ideas, his own way of, of reacting to things. He radiates that into us, so it gradually changes us. So even though our minds aren't there right away, 
Mm-hmm. The, the Eucharist itself, receiving the Eucharist regularly, adoring Jesus in the, in the Eucharist regularly, it just, something happens to our whole being where gradually our minds will come around to understand too. But it is in that, in a sense, the breaking of the bread, in that focus on the Eucharist, that all healing, all enlightenment comes. When you talk about Eucharistic adoration, all you have to look at is the lives of such holy people that have influenced even the last century. When you look at John Paul and Mother Teresa, Dorothy Days, Archbishop Sheen, I mean, those people who had daily adoration experiences, and then look at the work and the fruits of what they did. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm convinced, and that's one of the reasons for the book, and just mm-hmm. that and and actually our whole our whole ministry our family ministry is kind of you know really tied in with Pope John Paul when he wrote his encyclical letter on the Eucharist um he he mentions right in the letter he talks about amazement the profound amazement that we should feel and that this this amazement should always fill the church and then he says i would like to rekindle this eucharistic amazement by the present encyclical letter his whole goal in writing that letter was to start a fire again mm-hmm. about the Eucharist, to get us amazed. I'm convinced he was trying to lead the Church toward Eucharistic revival. And as I look around and I see all the Eucharistic chapels springing up in the last few years, I mean, it's happening. We're in the midst of, I think, probably the beginning stages, but very powerful stages, of a full Eucharistic revival, which is what we need to counter the secularism of our time. And that is so important, because as you point out in The Fifth Secret, that we don't just receive, we just don't take the Eucharist. Yeah, if I I have a favorite, that's the one for me, um, because that whole word receive just seems so passive. And and I guess because, I mean, all my life I've been... uh, uh, I just never, for whatever reason, I just never rebelled against the church. I always, I, I, I always wanted to go and receive, but I always thought of it as I'm just receiving God. It, it's the same every time. I'm just receiving God, and but it never clicked to me that that I need to not just take in what still looks like bread. I need to enter into a communication. That that word communion is not accidental. I need to commune with Jesus in a very deep way. It's a one-on-one entering into relationship with a person, mm-hmm. the person of, of, of Christ, who is God. And so the more I can tune myself in and realize, okay, I am, I am more intimately close to, to God now than I can ever be this side of heaven, that God himself is dwelling in me, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity is living inside me right now. That's the time to talk to God. Right. That's the time to really develop my relationship with the three persons of God. I think that's very, very true. Yeah, you bet. And uh, Secret Six, every reception is different, really kind of dovetails off of that fifth secret. It, it does. And, I mean, I think that when I read through this chapter, there was one particular thing that, that really got to me because, you know, sometimes if, if we're not in a worthy state or, you know, we're, we're conscious that we're not quite where we should be in going to Eucharist, uh, you had a quote from St. Thomas Aquinas that is in a false person, the sacrament does not produce any effect. Yeah, that's pretty heavy stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it, it, and I guess that's what really hits me is that, and again, I never, I was never taught this. I mean, I had eight mm-hmm. years of theology. I was never taught this. Yeah. 
that, and I never heard it from the pulpit, that every time I go to, to receive communion, it can be a very different experience. It can be different bad or different good. Mm-hmm. And I can, as Paul says, I can, I can eat and drink my, uh, into condemnation, condemnation into myself, and I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. I, so I want to I make every communion better than the last one. And that's, I think, the positive way to view this whole thing, that every reception can be different, is that today when I receive communion, I can receive communion much more worthily than I ever before have. And the way I do that is by trying to focus on uniting my whole being with the being of Jesus Christ. I think that's so important, and being a part of that, uniting in it, and and though this is not a book about reconciliation, reconciliation really does play an important role in preparing ourselves. It absolutely does. Absolutely does. Um, we could talk for a couple of hours just on, just on this. Just write another book, Vinny. Uh, yeah, well, I, I hope to. Uh, it, the reconciliation is absolutely vital for this. And I guess um, I, I do want to just throw something out. It's not in the book, it, mm-hmm. but it's, it all comes through Our Lady. And, and mm-hmm. in that encyclical letter of Pope John Paul, he devotes the whole sixth chapter to Mary, and what he says is there's a profound analogy between the fiat that Mary said and the amen that every believer says on receiving the body of the Lord. In other words, Mary was the first one asked to believe that God himself would take flesh in her. Mary, when the angel appeared to her, by virtue of her immaculate conception, she was totally pure. Mm-hmm. She had taken a vow of chastity, which she intended to keep forever. Couldn't be any purer. Christ himself then was able to take flesh in her. Every time I go to receive, and the priest says, the body of Christ, what he's saying is, do you believe that God himself wants to take flesh in you, live in you, pass his way of life into you? And we say, amen, that's supposed to be a fiat. Yes, Lord, let it be done to me according to your word. Help me be living Eucharist. Well, for us to do that and not be pure like Our Lady would be incredible sacrilege. And that's why we need to go to confession first. We're taking on the immaculateness that she was conceived with. Mm -hmm. That we, through the Sacrament of Reconciliation, become immaculately reconceived, if you will. So that now we are clean enough, we are pure enough, so that Jesus can take flesh in us. Beautifully said. I think part of the problem, Vinny, is that so many people, uh, if you only go to reconciliation once a year, you will go with a year's worth of stuff. And it can be painful to have to go through that. But by receiving reconciliation frequently, it actually becomes quite the gift. And it's not. I mean, I, I learned that the hard way. I mean, once I started going on a regular basis, it actually becomes quite a freeing sacrament. And it does make that reception of the Eucharist following that uh, a tremendous experience. It absolutely does. And that, I, mean, I love the fact that you're bringing in reconciliation so much. We'll have to do a whole show on reconciliation sometimes. <laughs> uh, Pope John Paul teaches that the reconciliation is not just about forgiveness. Mm-hmm. That's a profound encounter with Christ. If you go to the Diary of St. Faustina, she gives two, th- two reasons why we go to confession. One, for education, and the other, for healing. Mm. As I mentioned, forgiveness. The catechism, you won't find reconciliation under forgiveness. You find it under the heading, Sacraments of Healing. Mm. We're supposed to go to confession regularly because each time we go, it's a healing process. 
it's not just some place where we go and we rattle off a list of sins. We go with areas that where we need healing. Now, sin is a part of that. That's why we need healing. But we are wounded people, and Jesus in the confessional wants to provide us healing, which he will then, if you will, anoint further through the, through the reception of the Eucharist. But the two sacraments are, are intimately connected, and the main function of the sacrament of reconciliation is complete healing of our being, and the forgiveness is a part of that healing. I think we can go back to the gospel to hear Christ say that to so many that he healed. He said, your sins are forgiven. Go. Right, exactly. The, I mean, the paralytic is, is the, the one I, I, I love, where, you know, he doesn't just healing, heal him. He forgives his sins. And he heals him to demonstrate to the people around that he has the right, he has the power to forgive sin. Right. Mm-hmm. And which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say pick up your, pick up your palate and walk. So he connects the physical healing with the spiritual healing that comes from forgiving sin. I mean, that really leads to secret number seven, that there's no limit to the number of times we can receive. Yeah, it's, and I, I love to say that because people initially react. Um, but it's, the whole concept is that, that spiritual communion is not just a consolation prize for us that, that makes up for the fact that we can't really receive. Mm-hmm. We are really receiving. And at any point in my day, I can, I can say in whatever words or even just thoughts, Jesus, I can't, I can't receive you right now or I can't be with you right now in front of the Blessed Sacrament, but I unite myself with your presence in the Eucharist right now right. in every tabernacle in the world. Jesus, come into my heart. And that's real. And, and I found it. there were so many people that I've met and talked to who found such consolation where if for some reason they could not receive sacramentally in the, in the teaching of the Church that, that a, a good spiritual communion where I unite myself to Jesus with the desire of receiving Him sacramentally can bring as much grace as actually receiving Him. Isn't that what Divine Mercy is? That it's all what Divine Mercy is. It, it, it's like that's what has, has made it so powerful for me. When I look at the tabernacle, what I try to see, when I look at the host, which still looks like a wafer of bread, and I try to just see beyond it, what I see is the divine mercy image. I see Jesus, who's the image of the Father, with a hand raised in blessing, with those, the blood and water pouring from his heart as a fountain of mercy, with the other hand inviting us to his heart. This is Jesus in the Eucharist. This is what's happening in the Eucharist. And it also echoes what I mentioned before about that radiation therapy. Mm-hmm. And what the Pope says about uh, that, that the Eucharist is a mode of being that passes into us and through us. Those rays of the Divine Mercy image just give a visual picture of that. And Faustina, at several different times, saw the rays come from the Eucharist, come into her, and pass out to the world. That's the beauty of what the Eucharist is. I mean, it is a, a, a divine mystery, but it's so it's waiting there. It's the gift that's waiting for all of us. It absolutely is. Um, again, in, in Pope John Paul's uh, apostolic letter, Stay With Us, Lord, he, he writes that after receiving communion, we cannot keep to ourselves the joy we have experienced. He talks about the fact that we have to sense, at that time when we receive, we have to sense the duty to be a missionary, and he says the dismissal at the end of the, each Mass is a charge given to Christians to spread the gospel and instill Christian values throughout society. We're all supposed to become living 
tabernacles, living monstrances. And again, that's Our Lady. When, when Our Lady finds out she's the promised virgin, and God himself has just been conceived inside her as a human person, and she, in haste, goes to visit Elizabeth, and at that point, both, both Pope John Paul and Pope Benedict refer to that as the first Eucharistic procession. Mm. And her visitation is, she is a living, traveling monstrance, and what she's bringing to Elizabeth is the Eucharist within her. Wow. Yeah, well, yeah, and, I, and I think it, it's always just been so neat that Elizabeth just recognizes that. Absolutely. That's what I think is the challenge for us. And there's where, you know, it becomes an examine of conscience. It's like, when I go to visit somebody, when I go into the world, okay, so I, I receive communion today, and then I, I go outside of the church and I go into the world, am I, like Mary, so imbued so penetrated through and through with the living God that it shows in my voice, in my eyes, in my face, where it can be an inspiration to everybody I meet, so the Holy Spirit now can empower other people. I mean, so that, I mean, just the sound of her greeting caused John the Baptist to leap for joy in his mother's womb. Right. That's how much God's presence was even in her voice. She, she as the Catechism says, she's transparent to God. God can shine through her. And again, that's that mode of being that's supposed to pass into us and then through us to everybody else. So that's the challenge. I can't just receive. I need to receive and go. That's what, that's what the dismissal says. You know, in one form or the other, the, the word go is in every one of the three forms that are recommended for the dismissal at the end of Mass. Mm-hmm. Go. Yeah. <laughs> We're supposed to go forth, taking Christ with us into the world. Yeah, thanks That's right, be to and God. not just That's out sure. to the parking lot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Exit the parking lot carefully. Oh, <laughs> this is just a wonderful reflection. I mean, and just it's so timely that it would come out right before the season of Lent, and especially that period of Mystagosian Easter. And I just, this is the kind of uh, just. Buy multiple copies. That's yeah, the bottom pass line. them to your friends, and especially those people that are in RCIA and and uh, looking to seek for full communion, who will one day experience the Eucharist. Absolutely. Yeah. And understand, we, yeah, understand why we love the Eucharist, why we treasure it the way we do. I mean, John Paul II said the Holy Eucharist was the greatest treasure of the Church. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and for those Catholics who may not, uh, might be listening and saying, I never thought about this way. Yeah. I mean, take, take this, the seven secrets of the Eucharist, and pray. And before a tabernacle, or but before Mass, I mean, allow yourself to prepare yourself for this mystery. And that's been so wonderful. I've had so many people respond and tell me that they read it in front of the Eucharist yeah. in adoration. And I mean, there's no better way. And and we've had we've had so many people who who are buying multiple copies. Um, last week, we just, I just had a, a person buy a hundred copies, and he he wrote a letter and he sent them to a hundred bishops. Wow. And so it's it's like it's very very encouraging that people are seeing it as something that's going to be very helpful for well, for RCIA and instruction and priests and bishops and it's been it's been awesome. And and we should put uh, let our listeners know that the introduction is by Father Mitch Pacwa, and I, right on the very front, I mean, there's a very prominent cardinal right there, Cardinal George Pell, who says it's a must read. Yeah, he. I was so delighted to get the letter from him. Uh, just, I mean, I he is so wonderful that Colonel Pell he's so he's so in line with the teaching of the church yeah. he's so
so strong, and you know, for him to have read it that carefully and and write, write such an endorsement for me was just very humbling. Yeah, yeah. and someone else who has written quite Near profoundly. And dear to our hearts. Yeah, someone who has written so profoundly about the Eucharist, Father Benedict Rochelle, that it, he would highly recommend this as well. I mean, very good, Vinny. Uh, excellent. It, it was just, I mean, uh, that's just grace. Especially, I mean, Father Grishel is so busy, and for him to even find time to read it was was just so wonderful for me. And, and uh, then he he called me with that endorsement and just said, yeah, "I'm very excited about this. Let me let me give you an endorsement for the cover." And I thought, <laughs> "Wow, yeah, yeah, that wonderful. is something." Beautiful. Well, Vinnie Flynn, uh, we've been talking with Vinnie Flynn today, Seven Secrets of the Eucharist. Again, we do want to encourage you to pick up multiple copies of the book. As a matter of fact, go leave them in every Eucharistic chapel you come across. Oh, right. boy, would that be nice. That would be a great yeah, it's idea. A, it's available at, at Ignatius, Ignatius Press, um, through their website. Uh, it's available at our website, which is mercysong.com. Um, it's at, you know, stores wherever. Um, right or, here in Omaha. Yep. Oh, that's, that's great to hear. <laughs> um, or people can call uh, toll-free 1-888-549-8009. And all that information is on our website. Yep, we'll have it there. Wonderful. Well, Vinny, thank you so much for freely giving of your time to share with us today and for writing this beautiful book, Seven oh. Secrets of the Eucharist. Thank you, Bruce and Chris. It's been, it's been delightful talking with you.